All right, welcome to Whatever the Floats Your Boat podcast, and we're here with our friend Matt Knoll, who's a surveyor. You said you've been a surveyor, a marine surveyor, since 2007. Yeah, that's right. And uh, so we've known you for, what, probably a year and a half now or so, yep. maybe a little longer. And um, we've been winging together, we've been sailing together, we talk about boats every time we're talking to each other, pretty much. And I think you got a pretty um, unique, interesting perspective that um, a lot of people wish they had, especially people like me who are always looking at and working on old boats and thinking about old boats. And, and now even as we're getting our new boat built, we've come to realize that you know, just because it's a brand new boat, it's not perfect. So there are things that we need to know, that we should know or look out for. Um, and I think you have some perspective on that as well. Definitely. But, you know, one thing with boats is we're constantly learning. I'm constantly learning. And uh, I think anybody would be, especially today, boats are changing so fast. Like the amount of new equipment, um, the build technology is changing. That's not changing as fast, but it's definitely changing. Things are getting lighter, um, but just the amount of systems and equipment on boats is changing so rapidly, and it doesn't matter how many boats you look at, it's there's new stuff out there or different ways of doing things. It's uh, it's there's a lot, lot to know, a lot to learn. And we, like, would you say that's true for like smaller recreational boats as well? For you know, whatever? oh, absolutely. Like it's trickling down. You got digital switching. Um, all most boats right now are being built with infusion. Um, it's, it's become, you know, that used to be a high end thing and it's becoming kind of commonplace because of, uh, environmental and workforce or, or workplace health issues. Um, so all that's trickling down from the biggest super yachts to the smallest boats. Now, so you say infusion, like that, that's how our boat's being built, resin infusion, infusion with vinyl ester resin. And it seems like that's pretty much like with any company who's building production boats, that's basically... That's, standard, right? Yeah, that's becoming a new standard. It used to be chopper gun, and there are some low-end builders still using, you know, chopper gun, polyester resin, but that's being phased out. Most production boats, power boats, and sailboats are gone to an infusion method. So I want to ask you about your background a little bit, but while we're on this topic, I want to dig into this a little bit. Um, with all these new technologies and things that are changing in boats, like, is it fair to say that things are like a lot of this is still being tested we don't really know what the durability or the longer term um i guess the longer term durability or functioning of, of these systems are is that fair to say and we're just kind of yeah in some way it is and and the boat building used to be really kind of uh, almost diy-ish you know people built molds and then they'd roll fiberglass in and the boats were overbuilt. They used too much fiberglass because there was some amount of uncertainty and uh, materials were cheap, etc. And now it's changing to a much more automated process and it's really fallen in line with uh, kind of like automotive uh, production. And you can see this much more on the recreational boating sector, I mean on the powerboat sector than on sailboats. Um, I was watching a video about some welding earlier this morning while I was waking up having my coffee and there was a, an ad, an old ad for G3 boats. They make like those aluminum John boats and boats for the Great Lakes, walleye boats and it showed their factory and it's got like, you know, overhead robots for certain processes and a lot of similar things that you'd have in an automotive production facility. And we're seeing like, if you go look at the new Boston Whalers, their bigger boats, 
the windshields that wrap around. You see the same ones on ski boats and those uh, wake towers and stuff. These things are built in pretty mass production by like two or three factories and they make all these parts for a whole series of boat builders and the supply chains kind of evolving to be a bit more like automotive production but um, back to the boat the the hull building side the infusion things are getting lighter there's been a lot of trial and error issues and sometimes you hear about it occasionally invincible boats was on the internet their center console builder and there's a lot of internet forum threads about them having problems with delamination on their hulls. Um, I think that exists with all of them. I know Maverick and Pathfinder have had that with their Bayboat Center consoles. And these are all production Florida-style boats, but so they make so many hulls, it makes its way into the internet. There's a lot of boats where it doesn't actually become public knowledge, and these type of issues with delam do exist. Mm -hmm. um, it's there, you know, there can be errors in the infusion process. Um, where the laminate doesn't get wetted out, a lot of different things that could go on. So is that is is that just still part of the learning process, you think? Like just kind of hammering down the technique and I, I assume so. I'll be honest, I'm not the uh, I'm not the guru on infusion, but I have to assume also that in any manufacturing process there's some amount of loss or failure. What the problem is with, with boat building in a closed mold system is they don't always see it, and the production builders don't necessarily take extensive te uh, steps to discover it. If they did, they'd be throwing these hulls away and, and probably wouldn't be a big deal for them. But they don't have, if, for example, wind turbine blades and airplanes use a lot of composite, high-end composite manufacturing processes, and they have super in-depth, non-destructive testing programs where there's like a whole staff and they test each wind turbine blade with a lot of different techniques, tap testing, uh, ultrasonics, the same Boeing would do the same or their supply chain people would do the same with their wings and stuff that are built with carbon fiber. And that way they detect any flaw and can determine if they can repair that flaw or if the whole part has to be discarded. This doesn't happen in boat building. Uh, at least not, it, it might happen with super high end race boats like while they were building Comanche for example, they might have done some things, but with your average production boat, they're not doing anything close to that. Do you, do you, so it's probably a matter of resources, right? And, and just economies cost, of scale. Cost, resources, uh, market demands. The buyers don't care. You know, buyers are lined up to buy boats right now, and they don't care what they're getting. And they, I, I bet a lot of it is them buyers not knowing Correct. that as well, right? Yeah. To, they but, trust the warranty process, the dealers. Everybody has this, you know, it's a feel-good process. And I don't know, I don't know what the percentage of failure is, but... Probably ninety five percent better at the time. People are happy and content. Yeah, uh, maybe you know. So, well, so so if if we do discover some sort of issue like that, like um, delam in in a hole, you know, how big of a repair process is that? That depends. Is it how how extensive is it? What was it caused by? You know, if you find it on a boat that's brand new and being outfitted, you know, is it? an area that's just a one foot area that for some reason the resin didn't transfer to that area, that's easy to repair. But it begs the question, why did that happen? What is the bigger, you know, there could be other areas that were, didn't get the proper resin ratio. Um, so it kind of brings up a lot of questions if you have a flaw. You know, it's, it's not uncommon to have small flaws on any hull, um, you know, one inch pockets here and there. It's not 
desirable by any means, but if you have, you know, when, when you have a real failure, you probably have an over, it, it might start as a one foot area and then over a period of use slamming and stuff, it, that D land grows uh-huh. and then, uh, then you end up with a bigger area. So if it's caught at the right time, it could be a simple repair. So that we're seeing a lot of that on this whole trawler that we're working on. Not, not, it wasn't infused obviously, but just uh we're, we're finding those voids the, the gel co- it's so old and it's the gel code has not been taken care of so now that as uv is breaking that down all of a sudden like it's getting crazing and as we dig into this crazing that we are discovering like these void areas under the gel sure. code so yeah. probably just same example of the, these little pockets S- you're referring similar to. but um usually with infusion it's kind of in built into the laminate and uh-huh. it would go deeper than the voids you're finding i would assume and the other thing is that trawler has really thick, heavy laminates, mm. so those voids are kind of uh, not a really an issue. But when you have more modern boats, particularly a multi-hull or catamaran with infusion, any void is some amount of problem. Right, there's and not just not a lot of laminate there to uh, work with. Yeah. So and and yeah. So you're talking within the laminate, and then delam like that's maybe the laminate coming off the foam core, whatever. Could core be that. Using. Could be. Uh, layers of laminate separating could be the outer or the gel coat separating from the laminate so like a lot of these production boats look they, they spray the gel coat and then they put a layer of uh, mat in there and that uh, prevents print through of the inner woven cloth layers which are really the strength and sometimes you get depending you know there's timing issues there it could be issues where that those layers separate and that would be less of a structural more of a cosmetic problem but it's hard to know what what's going on without doing some destructive work now so so they're they're laying in this gel coat they're spraying in this gel coat probably and then laying in mat to or br- spraying in the mat with a chopper gun and and then letting that cure first before they're yeah there's a certain cure time and uh if they exceed that for example sometimes you know people hear you sometimes you hear terms of like a friday boat or something is where they they did that process they went away for the weekend and it cured too much and then they laid in the other laminates and then there's a disc bond there. So, so I, because ideally your that that bond should be within the hot coat time or whatever, whatever you want to call the time, it. Really, yeah. And it's a chemical bond. But if yeah. they wait too long, then it becomes a weak okay. mechanical bond. Exactly. Now, and and when you say print through, because now when these extra layers are coming in on the inside, it's being infused, which means it's under vacuum pressure, right? But, yeah, but not only that, it's it's the the fabric. So, uh, mat is you know it's all crisscross and it's a very tight pattern and it's very fine fat uh, material so it it, um, it doesn't show its its material through if you put uh, cloth woven cloth right over the gel coat when the heat when it gets out in the heat in the environment and it expands and contracts you get what's called print through and like you can literally see the weave of the cloth under the gel coat and you can see this a lot like it's becoming more and more common if you look at like quality boats of the 90s you didn't see any distortions in the gel coat like the boat would be mirror smooth going down the side and if you go to the boat show today any boat show and look at any brand boat particularly most of the power boats and you look down the side you can see the outlines of bulkheads you can see the outlines of stringers on the sides and sometimes you can even see cloth print through depending on the brand boat and it's just changes in what they're doing maybe changes in how quick they're doing things but to my eye the uh, visual quality is degraded uh-huh. in a lot of cases, and but that doesn't necessarily translate to anything structural or it's not necessarily. It may, um, 
that's something that a laminate engineer would have to answer the differences there. But certainly most of the boats are being built lighter. And, right. and so that's obviously if you have less material there, you're going to have less impact resistance at least. Uh huh. Well, so what could consumers do to be like to either, I don't know, obviously they could hire a surveyor like you. Like, is this something that you do if you survey a new boat? I mean, you. So there's a number of things, and it really depends on the value of the boat. So the first thing I would think anybody should do is read and get educated. There's Professional Boat Builder magazine has a ton of articles out there. It's the best resource. Um, then there's books. There's YouTube videos. There's a lot of information. There's a lot of misinformation, but just being curious and getting into it would would teach you a lot. Mm. And uh, and you might learn some misinformation. A lot of this stuff isn't uh, like laminate schedules and stuff. It's not public knowledge. People hold the builders hold it really tight to their chest. So you're not going to get there's not a lot of clean cut facts like steel in a metal boat building. There's a lot of factual information. The composites not so much. But you'll learn a lot by doing that. And then the rest of it to protect yourself. It depends on the value of the boat. If you're if you're buying a common production boat from a dealer. Um, they probably won't be very welcoming to in-depth inspections and probably won't negotiate a lot. Whereas if you're building a more uh, custom boat, they, eh, they probably won't be excited by it, but it'll be more normal and they'll be more agreeable to it. And some of the things you can do is you could have you know, a representative, a surveyor or a build representative attend to do regular inspections and that will highlight certain flaws early on the process and hopefully everybody can come to an agreeable term to correct those things if you have a finished hull you can do non-destructive testing that can be as simple as tap testing with a hammer uh, with a special type of hammer thermal imaging and ultrasonics and they each um, play a different role and contribute to one another so the most basic rudimentary one is the tap testing then thermal imaging covers a bigger area quicker, and ultrasonics um, is, is measured with a probe, and the probes are like half inch in diameter, three quarters of an inch in diameter, and you're measuring that small of a space. So it's much more time consuming to cover a large area. It's probably the most accurate, but it also has some limitations when dealing with core, and that sometimes the ultrasonics can't read through the other side of the core, so you can only see the front side of the core. So there's, each one has limitations, um, so yeah, but there's a lot of processes you can do. And these things are done with higher end boats pretty, mm -hmm. pretty regularly, like one-off customs. They're usually, they're often doing these types of processes. So they're, they're investing in the ex expensive time consuming sure. ultrasonic. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And if you're building a three, $400,000 boat spending $30,000 to have somebody go do some non-destructive testing on your hull is then, you know, it's 10%. It's a big deal. But if you're building a $3 million haul, that same 30 or call $40,000 is less of a big deal. Yeah. So that, that's, that's really where these things change. And I can tell you the big production builders, the South African builders, the French catamaran builders, if you showed up there and pointed out a flaw in their hull, they're probably just going to tell you to pound dirt. Um, they're not going to play a lot of ball with you, I don't think. Especially, especially this, uh, you know, this time when... Yeah, the market's hot. Things yeah, are in the, demand. They're two to five years out on these right, boats. Right, right. Um, so I know in our contract that uh, 
with Seawind, we're I'm not allowed to talk with in the contract, but I can say that we have the ability to uh, you know have a survey or inspect the boat before we take delivery, which is good, and um, we will. And luckily, uh, luckily for us, Seawind has a great reputation, so I'm not anticipating finding anything significant. But I think it's a probably good thing to do, like you say, just to cover you know cover our bases. Sure, and and the pre-delivery inspection survey, if you will, you know. In theory, the boat's already, it's 90 for, 99% or 100% complete. You're ready to accept it. It's not a great time to go in-depth into non-destructive testing looking for flaws in the laminates. But it's more of a in-depth systems test and making sure everything's working, catching small cosmetic issues. I've done a couple of those uh, recently, not on sailboats, on power boats. One was a 77-footer and spent two days going through it had a couple of helpers of the yacht crew and we came up with like almost a hundred punch list items on that boat it was a production 77 footer and there were a hundred items and i think the dealer manufacturer worked with the owner and the crew to correct at least three quarters of those items the other quarter being kind of like nitpicky you know maybe it needed to be an option or an improvement it wasn't really a flaw but wasn't you know something that needed to be improved so that that becomes a gray area and uh but that's huge that's a huge amount of you know they're all they were all little items some stupid things like cock that was ugly or done poorly little areas of overspray on paint um wire ties but they they add up and if you were to hire somebody to do all those things, it would cost a lot of money. And the dealer was able to put a gang of six guys on there. They worked at it for two or three days and knocked all these things out and get a better end product. That's good to know. That's what I was going to ask next is how significant was that list of 100 things. But like you said, like it's a brand new boat. You want it to be right no matter yeah. what, even yeah. no matter how insignificant. So it's good to point out every little thing probably. Yeah. No one of those items would have prevented anybody from taking that boat that day and going down the waterway and using it. But long term, a couple of them may have turned into uh, problems. And there were certain things like there was these uh, automated doors. You push a button, the door opens and closes, and they weren't closing right. That's That gets frustrating. That there's a big sliding door in the back deck wasn't latching right, wasn't locking, things like that. And that can be a real pain and it becomes a nuisance item. It's vis visible to the crew and the owners. And that's a crude yacht and it's visible to everybody. Um, and like you said, probably way better for the factory or, or whoever is familiar with that. The, how yeah, that they're already works. working on it. Yeah. They're, they're there. That's that's part of their, their job. So. So, uh, so taking a step back, you say it's not, it's not best to discover a huge defect in the laminate at at this stage of the process, how common is it for people to get a surveyor in during the build of, you know, let's let's stick to just um, the scenario of, you know, a, a three to three hundred thousand to a million dollar uh, catamaran, for example. I, I don't know because I'm not, you know, here in the states we don't have anybody building those boats on a production level, and that's where I am, and I'm not being sent overseas to to deal with any of those boats. But I'd say it's probably pretty uncommon uh -huh. um, for say uh, somebody to have a surveyor going to lagoons factory during the lamination process i'd say that's pretty uncommon um, what would you do if you were having a cat built like that and you didn't have your experience like is there a thing I, I would do like i said i would try and do research read books read videos read professional boat builder and if I had the time and money to go there myself and see it, 
I would definitely go see as many stages of my boat being built as I possibly could. So you just inform yourself to the best you could. And yeah, then and, and just go see and ask questions. And, uh, you know, a lot of things just become really obvious when you're there in person. And when you're talking to the guys doing work, they become really obvious. I, I had a boat. This has nothing to do with a new boat. It was a boat being repaired. And it was being repaired by a, a, a factory representative, a factory yard, if you will. And this particular boat had uh, carbon fiber inner laminates, balsa core, and then a Kevlar layer, and then some layers of glass. And pretty high-tech stuff. And they were repairing a section of the bottom where it hit something. And um, I was asked to go there and check the repairs while it was in progress and just report to the owner. And I went, looked, and they cut it all out. I saw it, looked good. They did a good job cutting the work damage area out. No problems. I said, call me back when you fit in the balsa core. They did that. I came back, looked at it, looked good. I said, okay, call me back once you've put vacuum bag the laminates back in there, which was supposed to be Kevlar and some layers of glass, but before you do any fairing, because after that, they're going to grind in fair. So they didn't call me back for that. I also, at that time, asked for a laminate schedule. They never gave me the laminate schedule. So then I got a call one day, hey, the boat's done. Can you come look at it? And it was done. They had done everything but put the bottom paint on. And I was there with a the worker that did the work. And I said, hey, I never got the laminate schedule. What Kevlar did you put in? And he said, oh, we didn't bother with the Kevlar. We didn't have any laying around. It was like the guy wasn't lying. He didn't know he had really done anything wrong, but missing a key part of the laminate. And just being present, asking questions, uncovered this problem. They had to cut it out and do it again. Oh, man. Jeez. But, it, it, you know, so that doesn't... That I, you didn't have to be a surveyor to do that, but you had to just be inquisitive and be present and, you know, participate, and it, it, you'll see a lot. Right. That That's easy to know. It's easy to know what m maybe... Uh, well, it's what, not apparent at first. Well, it's not it apparent, but, apparent, but it's easy to know what the laminate schedule should be for this repair, for example. Like, if you're just at all familiar, it's easy to know it should be a layer of six ounce Kevlar and then two layers of whatever it is. Sure. And then, and then just having this chat with the worker who did it and just finding that out. Yeah. Like, but the same thing could happen during a new construction process initially. You know, if you don't know anything about boats, yeah, you're, you're going to be kind of, you know, off loss. But if you're somewhat experienced and if you spent your time reading and educating yourself, then, you know, you'll learn a lot. But most people building a boat, they're professionals. They've got other things going on and that is you know that is where a surveyor comes in um to to do these types of things on the more expensive boats i'd say the 55 footers and up a lot of these boats are having captains and in that case it's a great idea to hire the captain and pay their salary early and have them be there they're not surveyors but they're assuming they're a decent guy they're going to be inquisitive and they'll save you a lot mm -hmm. and they're they're the ones who are going to have to deal with this problem later on. So that's... Perhaps. There's a lot of turnover in that size range captain. Okay. So they're, they're not, you know, they're not always the highest level. Mm -hmm. But there are some that are excellent. And, um, so but, potentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let's take a step back. Let's ask, like, about your background, Matt. Like, so where did you grow up? You know, you're a sailor. How did you get into sailing? And, um, and then how did you get into marine surveying from there? Yeah, great. Uh, so grew up, my parents traveled around. My dad worked in the oil and gas industry, and I was born in Japan, and we moved to South Africa. We moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma. We moved to Holland. We lived in Holland for eight years, and my dad taught himself how to sail and liked sailing, had a little cruising boat, and therefore 
he bought me an optimist didn't really do any formal sailing lessons just kind of threw me out there and we went sailing like every weekend and just as a family it wasn't always the most fun it was like rough weather it was cold in holland my mom didn't really enjoy it all the time but the cool thing was he had a lot of time off in the summer we'd go cruise around england and the coast of Belgium and France and around Holland. So we did a lot of sailing. And my dad did all his own work on the boat. He was constantly on the boat. Well, it was wintertime, the boat, every weekend, he was in the boat yard working on the boat. And me and my brother were kind of standing in the boat yard, playing, hanging out under the boat, running around the boat yard as, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten year olds. And then, uh, what kind of boat was that? Initially, it was a boat called Arrival 32. And then he got, it's a British built boat, and then he got another British built boat called a Vancouver 36, built by North Shore. They're the same company that builds uh, Southerlies and Fishers. And so, Cutter, Blue Water, uh, Fin Keel boat. So, then when I was 12, my parents packed up and we got in the boat and we took, they took a year off and we sailed down the coast of the uh, Atlantic side, down the coast of Europe over to Canaries, across the Atlantic, and up the Caribbean chain, and landed in Florida, and my, we stopped there, my parents set up, a, my dad set up a business in Florida, and me and my brother got involved in a non-profit uh, youth sailing program called the Edison Sailing Center, and uh, that was the coolest place. They uh, had dinghies for us to use, Optimus, lasers, 420s, we taught sailing all summer. We taught sailing to like kids that didn't, we were kids, you know, but we taught sailing to other kids that didn't know anything. They pay for summer sailing camp and we were there like as camp counselors. We had like a fleet of ribs. We were always fixing the ribs. We'd go wakeboarding, kneeboarding, tubing in our free time. Every summer for 4th of July, we'd take a week trip down to the Dry Tortugas, just all the kids and our coach and maybe one or two parents of chaperones, go fishing, snorkeling. So we just had the greatest time there. We really had a total free reign to do what we want. We destroyed so many boats. We had to fix the boats. We like we learned a ton there. And That's such a good. Experience. I just grew up on the water. My own, you know, my parents got this little boat. A lot of sailing. Then did some uh, longer trips with the sailing coach down to Belize, Honduras, and the Bahamas, and, and played around. So then, when it was time to go to college. Um, I went to Maine Maritime for a semester, and it's a maritime academy. You learn to be a ship captain or a ship's engineer. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I always wanted to design boats. I was kind of getting cold up there, wasn't really feeling it. So I transferred to the University of New Orleans. They have a naval architecture program. I was studying naval architecture, doing a lot of sailboat racing, and working at the yacht club, teaching sailing, fixing boats in my free time or spare time, and uh, wasn't the best college student. Got a Got introduced to a marine surveyor and uh, took a summer job with him doing marine surveying. But he didn't do any pleasure boats. He did just tugs, barges, work boats up and down the Mississippi River. And I really liked it. It was a lot of fun crawling around, like going to real shipyards. It was all steel stuff. It was far removed from pleasure boats, but I learned a ton. And it was enjoyable. Every day was a new day. Go see something new and deal with marine-based problems. And uh, that was kind of how I got into it. And I, I kept working for him. And things got slow 2008, 2009. I, I went work for a barge company overseeing barge maintenance. And I worked for a company that had a bunch of supply boats and offshore supply ships in their maintenance and repair department, overseeing dry dockings and planning dry dockings and overhauls and engines, etc. 
learned a ton there. I mean, big stuff, fast moving. Every ship they own has like six diesel engines or more, so constantly overhauling engines, controllable pitch propellers, and that's a lot of experience that translates down. And this was all in New Orleans. Yeah, this was all in New Orleans. I left that company, went back to marine surveying, and then eventually broke out on my own. We moved to Florida in 2018. Uh huh. So you've been on your own in Florida since 2018 and doing both still commercial work as well as recreational. That's exactly right. Work. Yeah. Okay. But taking another step back, back to what, how you were mentioning about your youth sailing club, that seems like such an incredible experience. From my perspective, I didn't grow up sailing. We grew up on the water just on, you know, small power boats and going across the bay and stuff. But I would have loved to have been involved in a program like that. Like, that sounds like the dream. Are there a lot of programs like that around the country? There are not. Um, and even that program changed. I mean, you know, people, rules, laws, parents, <laughs> programs like that don't exist. Uh -huh. They're not allowed to exist. It, it, if they are, they're just more structured now? Yeah, more... yeah. Thing programs are more structured. Most sailing programs revolve around the yacht club, and most yacht clubs are for pretty affluent people. Uh, yeah. So that's the first challenge you have. And then, that's what, that's what how it was by me. Like the, they had some sailing programs that, but they were called yacht clubs. And yeah. I don't think they were super formal, but just being called a yacht club was well, formal. Enough. And, and most of the big yacht clubs do have really formal. Like when you get in their race programs, your parents have to buy your own boat. Um, they pay for coaches, but the parents they might split a coach amongst five people, and these coaches are extremely well paid. And you go on the travel programs, you go racing. It costs a fortune for parents. We had. Almost all of that. We didn't have quite as high a level, high caliber, high paid coach, but we had the same boats that were provided to us. It was truly amazing. Um, there are some programs like that. There is uh, the U.S. Sailing Center in Martin County. That's up in Jensen, right? Yeah, it's somewhat similar. It's uh, more structured, much better organized, has a lot better funding, but somewhat similar in, in that it's, a, you know, it's open to the public. It doesn't, doesn't involve a Yacht Club membership. Uh, there's a program down in Miami, in New Orleans. They just opened a new program um, that's a nonprofit for open to the general public. So there are some of these programs around the country, but they're a little more structured, a little better organized. Well, if you were living in an area and you're interested in getting uh, involved in something like this, would you just Google, like, sailing program locally? Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. maybe hopefully your area has sailing something like center, that. Sailing center, you know ask around the yacht club people at the yacht clubs usually do know of alternatives to the yacht clubs for sailing uh -huh. so that, that's a good resource the yacht club even if you can't afford to join or don't want to join okay um jumping back forward again you you did a ton of work in the uh, commercial side of things and now a ton of work on the recreational side of things do you do you have a preference to one or the other what kind of work because you still do both right yeah I still do both and um so the commercial side of the business is, is much different. It's out of necessity. And so marine surveying as a profession originates from the movement of cargo. And the original form of insurance, like we think of homeowner's insurance and car insurance, the insurance came out of cargo shipping in London. Like they came up, they were moving cargo, they'd lose a ship, they came up with a way to share the expenses. A bunch of investors would get together, pool their money together and say, you know, if this ship goes down, we pay out X amount. If it doesn't go down, we we get to keep our money, and that's how we make money. And that was the original form of insurance. And this is back in, like, the tall sailing ship days, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And from there, 
became a marine surveyor, somebody to go out and assess losses to cargo, etc. And that that's really the marine surveyor's role. The modern day term when we're thinking of sailboats and pleasure boats and trawlers, the modern day marine surveyor that goes out and inspects your boat for the condition, that's a that's a pretty modern evolution, I would say, probably getting popular sometime in the 60s. I'm not a historian, but that, that's probably, so it's in the grand scheme, a pretty new profession, and it's a little bit different. Um, and so the marine surveyor on the commercial side a little more structured and your customers are oftentimes ship owners, barge owners, or their insurance underwriters. And so you could have five customers and they're repeat customers. Whereas on the pleasure boat side of things, you're dealing with boat buyers, boat owners, and so it's dealing with the general public every day you got a new customer. Um, that's, that's one big difference from a business standpoint. Technically, there's a huge difference. You know, when I'm dealing with a barge, it's nothing, nothing really similar to dealing with a pleasure boat, but where it is common, where the commonality lies for marine surveyors, identifying information, documenting the information, and then disseminating that information to the customer. That's, you know, it's, it's, you could be the smartest guy in the world and find all these problems, but if you can't communicate them properly, what good does it do? And these days, communication's evolving, photos, I mean, photos have been around forever, but Literally, when I started in 2007, the guy I was working for, we were using um, throwaway click and you know point and shoot cameras and go to Walgreens, get them developed, glue the pages to a piece of paper and mail it to a client, and you know go out and survey a boat. It didn't matter if you want to take 100 pictures; you're only taking 24 pictures or 23 pictures because that's all it was on the camera. Wow. Nowadays, we got awesome digital cameras. Every phone's got awesome cameras, so there's not a survey you don't go to and have a hundred photos. You upload them to the internet, put them in a shared file, share them with the customer, and you share a lot more information that way. Uh, um, but that's that's the commonality where it kind of crosses over. It's it's about sharing information, educating people on what it is we're seeing. Uh huh. Uh huh. And what how about the differences, like and and what you prefer or, um, yeah. So the the. The differences are technical, you know, steel versus fiberglass, um, heavy built industrial stuff versus recreational use, a little bit more delicate, fragile. The other difference is the people behind it. The commercial stuff is there to make money. You know, folks usually aren't overly concerned with the cosmetic issue. They may be unhappy with the cosmetic issue, but at the end of the, end of the day, they need a problem solved to get back to work mm. whereas on the recreational side you deal with a lot of touchy-feely people stuff mm-hmm. and it could be you know people are unhappy about a transaction unhappy about some relatively nuanced cosmetic issue and and it becomes a little more touchy-feely there as far as preference i like challenging situations so and that can happen in both you run the mill insurance condition evaluation survey to renew your insurance that's not a lot of fun for me mm-hmm. you know it pays the bill but Dealing with a boat that has a problem, has incurred some damage, has uh, a new construction project, for example, a refit project. It, those are much more enjoyable. You have a much, I have a better chance to add value and bring something to the table. Uh-huh. And that's probably not every surveyor, right? Like some people probably just don't mind just going. A to lot work. of surveyors just like those everyday condition evaluation survey, get in, get out. They're, they use checklist-type software, automated software on a tablet. They can crank out these reports really quick, and that's their bread and butter. Uh-huh. And that's what they do. Uh-huh. 
Um, so we talked a lot about, um, you know, like, like the build and, and, um, kind of laminating new boats and stuff like that. What other, do you have any other advice for a c consumer buying a new boat that's different from, from that? You know, and what to a look at. A brand new for. boat or, or a new to them boat? A brand new boat to start. Um, not, not really. I mean, again, educate yourself is, is the biggest thing. And, and try and be aware of what it is you're buying. Um, I think sometimes people have misconceptions. They, 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 they're buying something that's very production-based. It, it, you know, it's a huge amount of money. Today, uh, uh, you know, any 45-foot catamaran, 50-foot catamaran is approaching a million dollars, most of them, right? And so it's a huge amount of money. But a lot of these boats are really high volume production base and you have to have realistic expectations about the quality or lack thereof that you're getting mm -hmm. and if the buyer has unrealistic expectations it could lead to a lot of frustration at the same time uh, it's important to hold the line and be be strong about getting certain things fixed that are important yeah how that's got to be a hard thing i mean that's a that's a negotiation thing that's a business thing that's not necessarily a boat issue yeah identifying the problem and the solution is the boat issue uh -huh. getting it resolved is a business issue yeah yeah i mean just yeah having those expectations i mean yeah just just how far do you push it i mean there are with any new boat there are going to be issues like sure it's you probably want to identify all of them right and it's then it's just how far do you want to push and what are your expectations in terms of um, yeah, what that, you want the outcome that, that becomes a negotiation yeah and, and that's a, a give and take and you know if the if the the dealer or the builder is re receptive and responsive to the uh you know 90 percent of your list that you came up with and they push back on a certain amount that's probably a pretty reasonable you know you're probably coming to some reasonable common ground mm -hmm. similarly if they stonewall you and don't want to respond to anything you're going to be upset and and not you know you're not going to have any traction. So, but it's really a negotiation issue. And then I'm sure at some point there's got to be a like, like, all right, it's time to just go sailing. Like, yeah, well, and that's 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 a big thing. That's that's a personal decision. Some people, not necessarily with new boats, only with with uh, cruising boats. A lot of people set out to go cruising and never get over that hump of just untying because the boat's never ready. It's never a hundred percent. And that can be. Uh, it was a challenge when I. I took a, a, a year off in between all that other stuff I was doing and my girlfriend, now wife, we got my dad's old boat, we bought it back and we fixed it up and went sailing and that was something we faced, just getting to the point and we were on a limited time, we had a limited budget where we wanted to go sailing but we also wanted to get back to work and um, which I don't recommend anybody does that, don't have a time constraint but anyways, sometimes you just got to untie and go and deal with it. We did that to an extent. We had problems. We had a generator it was constantly giving us problems. It ended up just breaking, and we had to get one of those Honda EU 2000 generators to make electricity. But same thing could happen on a new boat. And the difference on a new boat, things are under warranty. If you want your warranty covered, you need to be somewhere where somebody can service it. So if you're out in the Bahama, Bahamian Out Islands on your new boat and you're trying to get warranty fixed, they're telling you to come back to Fort Lauderdale. If you want to get your, your money's worth, you kind of got to come back. But on the other hand, you're spending your time and money to come back, so it becomes kind of a frustrating situation. Yeah, yeah, so that's probably going to be the, that balance everyone's going to yeah. have to figure out if they're yeah. in, in that situation. Um, 
just to clarify in your story you just mentioned that boat you guys bought back and fixed up and went cruising on that's the same exact boat that your dad like yeah. the boat that was the boat that boat sat behind my parents house uh for many years and deteriorated while we were all doing other things in life and my dad eventually donated it to the same sailing center and they were letting a guy use it who was going to sail it around the world he was living on it uh, he didn't do anything to it it was in a real bad shape when we got it, it had rats living on it cockroaches it was disgusting and uh, we, we whipped it back into shape, went cruising on it for a bit, and then we sold it to a couple who bought it and sailed it back to England where it came from. That's so crazy. That's such a cool story. So so let's talk more about old boats. So we <laughs> That's always been our experience with older boats. Um, you know, we had, I had that Morris Francis, and it was from the 70s, and then our old trawler, 34-foot Marine Trader trawler was from the 70s. And, and like you mentioned earlier, like, there's not a ton you have to worry about with those hulls. Like they laid them up so freaking thick that, um, I don't know. It wasn't probably wasn't really a huge concern in terms of, uh, integrity to these old boats from the seventies. Um, is that true? Do I have, yeah, that right? that's, that's absolutely true. Um, the, the bigger issues comes down to systems most likely. And some things to look out for on older boats is if it's been severely damaged and put together badly by somebody, that could lead to real structural problems. And some of the areas to look out for for that are around bulkheads, where bulkheads meet the hull. Most of those older boats have plywood bulkheads that are tabbed in with fiberglass, so you want to look at look for new fiberglass tabbing or cracked bulkheads. Sometimes the plywood could crack or tear. Sometimes the bulkheads could be rotted. Those can lead to substantial issues, particularly on sailboats. You'll have a primary bulkhead that's under the mast or to shred in way the shrouds. That bears the, a lot of the load. On uh, your smaller sailboats where you have deck step masts, you'll get mast compression issues where the mast is like sagging into the cabin top. And those things are usually pretty easy to spot. Like you can usually stand on top of the cabin top and see that it's like a little dip where the mast is. Mm. So you want to look out for things like that. Even if you find things like that, it doesn't mean you shouldn't get that boat. You should be aware of it. And you should have a plan on how you're going to deal with it. And then it may still present good value that that's a thing you got to weigh up but being aware of it but like you were saying on most older boats cosmetics are always a problem and that's a matter of how you live with it but as far as getting out and enjoying your boat and being safe it's the systems and the number one thing is the things that cause water to come into your boat mm -hmm. through hull valves your rudder and your propeller shaft you want to make sure those things are sound and i'd say when i'm surveying used boats, even boats as new as four years old. Almost every boat I go look at, at least one of the through-haul valves is frozen, doesn't work. It's wow. stuck in the open position. And al almost always there's at least one or more hose that's going to an overboard or through-haul that's got dry rock cracking. That's, that's bad stuff. You want to keep that stuff in good working order because that's, that's between you and sinking. You want to not sink. That's important. And that's so, uh, a few things to say. Uh, I mean, all this stuff that you're saying, obviously anyone could, if they have a good surveyor, that surveyor should be able to identify all this sure. stuff. But you're, I mean, most people could identify, this is easy stuff to identify. It's easy themselves. stuff to identify. It just involves getting on your hands and knees with a flashlight and pulling up some floorboards and poking around. It's the low hanging fruit. It's almost always there. And it's something you should be calibrated to and expecting, you know, when uh, back when, 
girlfriend and I, we, we bought my parents' boat. We were trying to buy a turnkey ready-to-go cruising boat, right? That doesn't exist. And we'd go around. We had like a $50,000 budget. We were going around kicking the tires. I must have looked at 100 different boats. And after a while, I just realized, like, being unrealistic in my expectations, all of these boats have been used and abused. They look good. The owners have put new generators, new electronics, new cushions, nice things. But they all needed substantial work to the systems. They needed propeller shaft bearings. They needed all the through holes gone through. They needed shrouds or chain plates replaced. And these are the big ticket items. If you find a boat that's had those changed and were worked on and the cosmetics are poor, you're probably coming out way ahead because that's the hard grunt work. Mm, and the you expensive know. stuff. It is expensive stuff. I mean, putting new cushions on a boat makes the boat look way better, makes the boat feel great, but it's quick and easy. You know, you can hire somebody. It's relatively cheap and easy work. Painting, if, if you do it yourself, it's a lot of work, but the end result, it's quick and easy cosmetic, but it's not necessary to enjoying your boat safely. Mm -hmm. It's got great visual impact, but having those core systems be sound is, is where it all needs to start. Mm -hmm. That's uh, it, I don't know if you listen to Andy Shell's podcast, but that's what he says about sail. But it's just keep the water out and keep the rig up. Yeah, and those are the most important things. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And then from there on, it becomes a performance uh, thing. You know, sailboats. A lot of cruising sailboats that come on the market used have really ragged out sails. And I've been on uh, sea trials where the broker's telling the buyer how great these sails are. And I'm looking at it telling the buyer, if we got hit by a 25-knot gust, this main is just going to explode into, you know, it's a catamaran that's been through the moorings charter, footloose charter. It's now 20-something years old, and this is still the original sail. Like Jeez. It's been used and abused, and sails are expensive. Yeah, the sail works. We can put it up, we can sail around, but if you flog it a bit, it might rip. It's not giving you the right performance. If you don't know what the right performance are, is, you might not care. But that's another big ticket item. Mm, yeah. Particularly on sailboats. Yeah. Um, All right for going downwind still with those bags. Probably, sails. <laughs> yeah. Another thing that I think we're going to see more of here in the future. So um, your older boats built 60s, 70s, and 80s, pretty much all of them had uh, keels for sailboats that were part of the mold. They're, they're part of the hull. They really... You, You'd have to cut them off. They're the leads encapsulated or the cast irons encapsulated. Your more your modern production boats, almost all of them have bolt-on keels, and that became popular. I don't know, sometime in the mid '80s, first with your cruiser racers, and now it's all the boats have bolt-on keels. And those are stainless steel bolts that go through the hull, and they the the bolt heads sit in bilge water, usually seawater, and Sometimes that seam between the keel and the hull is just a cocked seam. Sometimes it has fairing material in there. That can leak too and allow water to get to the bolts. Over time, those bolts can corrode and crack. Stainless is subject to crevice corrosion. There's been, you Google sailboat keel failure, you'll come up with a half dozen boats where the keels have fallen off and they become high-profile cases because people have died, and there's been several of them where it's been uh, a group of kids, there was a boat up uh, in Texas that was a bunch of college kids racing a college sailboat to Mexico, several, they had fatalities, there's uh, a boat that was racing to England that was on charter, and it had some fatalities, and this is, we're, I think we're going to see more and more of this, you know, because these boats are getting older, they're cheap, they're 
pretty well built boats. Most of them perform really well. They kind of they were originally cruiser racers, but by today's standards, present themselves as pretty decent cruising boats. But these keels are kind of an issue, and there's not a quick, easy solution to it. Um, there are non-destructive testing methods where you can uh, put a probe on the top of the bolt head and look for cracks in the bolt that exists. But and it's being done on really high-end race boats. But again, if you're buying a $50,000 boat, do you want to pay some guy to, I know only of one guy here in the States, there's probably more, but I only know of one guy here in the States that's doing it. I don't know what his rates are exactly, but he's up in the Northeast. By the time we got him here to Florida, paid his flight and a day of his time, probably looking at least $3,000 to come look at a handful of keel bolts. How foolproof is that? Pretty foolproof. Okay. Yeah, it's wow. definitely. It, and what it allows you to do is to inspect it without taking it apart. Because right. that was the, the next alternative is you have to unbolt the keel, hope that you can get the bolts out, and then there's studs. Depending on some keels, the, 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 the bolts are in there different methods. Sometimes they're bolts, sometimes they're studs that come up through the keels. There's different methods there. So can you get it apart? Will you break them if you get them apart? If you break it and it's stuck in the keel, now you got a machining problem with this big heavy keel and you can't get to a machine shop. So it quickly evolves into a pretty big DIY challenge. Um, and, and that's a kind of a thing nobody really, people don't talk about it a lot. There's not a lot written about it. And it has the potential to be life-threatening. Yeah, that's a great, that's good to know because like you said earlier, like every, you know, nothing is going to be 100% done when you should go cruising like that whatever level that's at that's up to the person but it's never going to be 100 percent done but that's something that you can't just say or you probably shouldn't just say you know screw it it's working now let's just go and deal with it on the way yeah but on the other hand the alternatives are such a kind of high threshold you got to really weigh it up and it comes down to your budget i would say you wouldn't want to do something like that and go across the Pacific or the Atlantic. But if you're just looking to go coastal cruising and you got your ditch bag put together and stuff, and you got a pretty good plan and you're staying close to shore within VHF range, eh, you might be, you're, you're probably not going on extreme heavy weather. Yeah. You can pick you, your you, weather daily. Yeah. You might be, uh, you might have a good risk reward analysis there, but if you're trying to take a budget minded boat with a bolted keel and you don't know the condition of the keel bolts and you want to go across the Atlantic, across the Pacific or do other ocean, even just sail down to the Caribbean. If you're leaving the States and you're going down to the windward Leeward islands, you're going to have as heavy a weather as you will anywhere. You're sailing upwind potentially for a large portion of it in some really big seas. If you don't get the ideal weather window and your boat's going to take a beating and you're, you're three, 400 miles from land in many cases, that's far enough to, where rescue is a real problem. Right. You're relying on an EPIRB and good Samaritans at that point. So that, you know, it's wow. something you really want to weigh up because you could find yourself in that situation. What uh, well, is The guy who's using the probe to examine these keelboats, what exactly is that? Is that ultra? It's it's a form of ultrasonic. Ultrasonic, okay. Yeah. And hmm. What, so what would someone Google if they wanted to try to... Uh, non-destructive testing. Uh, like of keel non, Non-destructive testing of bolts, okay? Because this is done in industrial settings, not specific to keelboats. So uh -huh. if you do Google non-destructive testing of bolts, you might find depending on where you are, like on the Gulf Coast, Texas area, for example, there's a ton of really good non-destructive testing companies there because of all the pipelines and oil and gas and refineries. And you might find somebody that has nothing to do with boats, but they have the system set up to do this type of non-destructive testing. 
and beyond that, beyond that, um, what someone can do themselves obviously is far from foolproof or even nearly as good as that. But is there anything else someone could do themselves to examine the cue bullets? Obviously, you can look at the top yeah, of them. Yeah, you can look at the top of them if they're threaded. If you got you know some some boats, you look in the bilge and you got uh, nuts and washers, and you could take those off one by one with the boat out of the water, inspect them, you know, where the nut's sitting and see if, what it looks like. And that might, if it looks beautiful and shiny, like stainless steel, like, then maybe you feel more comfortable. Or if you take the nut off and you see, Hey, there's rings of rust here and rust staining might lead you to like, Hey, we need to investigate this per further. Mm -hmm. So that's the, that's the easiest, lowest hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The other thing, Torque. Some of these bolts need to be retorqued. Um, it's hard to know what the torque spec should be. There's no owner's manual. It's probably not in the owner's manual. But just at least checking that they're tight, you know, with hand tools, that's a good starting point. Mm -hmm. That they haven't worked loose over time. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else like that that you see as a theme on, um, you know, boats like this, the older boats in the more budget range? For for blue water cruising, the other one that I see that's doesn't get a lot of attention. The rigs are getting a lot of attention these days because insurers are mandating it. Um, and that might change because more and more insurers are pulling out of the recreational and cruising market here in the United States. It's getting harder and harder to insure sailboats. And there's uh, a couple of insurers that are still writing it. They don't care, but they don't give you good coverage. In other words, so they depreciate everything. And it's, you're paying for insurance. It's almost worthless. Mm -hmm. So they're... That's that's in transition, but standing rigging's got a lot of attention. There's plenty written about it. People are kind of paying attention to it. Before you keep going, when you say uh, insurers are requiring, what are they requiring? A rig inspection or just after? A lot of them are just requiring flat out renewing. Like for multi hauls, every ten years, most insurers are demanding every ten years replace standing rigging. Okay. Um, rudders are the other big thing. Most rudders. Are even on going back on older boats, on sailboats specifically, they're foam cored. And a lot of times, the way they're built is you'll have a stainless steel rudder stock with the stainless steel tabs coming out of it, and then the foam is put around that, and then it's laminated, sometimes in two pieces, some form thereof. They will oftentimes leak where the top of the rudder stock goes into the foam core or into the top of the rudder. It'll wobble there over time and it'll start leaking, and then that water makes its way into the rudder. and you can get crevice corrosion and those tabs, which are what hold the foam into contact with the stock, because the stock's just a round piece, they'll break off and you could find yourself like the rudder still attached, but your rudder stock is spinning inside the rudder. Or you could find yourself with the whole thing just broke off completely. Either scenario, you got no steerage. Most big boats are very very difficult at best to steer without a rudder hmm. and that there's there was i think a boat just this year in the arc every year in the arc there's a boat that loses steering and people have to abandon the boat when i say arc atlantic rally for cruisers you can find almost every year a boat loses steering that that again can quickly become a life or death situation I mean, if you're out in six foot seas and you can't hold your 30 to 50 foot boat into a favorable position on the wind most boats will lay beam two and if you're in six foot seas laying beam two not making headway you try hanging on to your boat you're going to be rolling it's going to be frightening and a couple of hours of that stuff's going to be breaking inside the boat you're going to want to get off so losing steering could be a huge problem yeah i think 
people and some couch sailors would probably argue that oh yeah you could always you know tow a warp behind and try to steer and but it's it is difficult at best yeah the most experienced even the most experienced sailors that is very tough and you know people say oh you need a long keel and a well-balanced boat and stuff fact is most cruising boats are not even the ones with long keels i would argue actually that the racier boats the, the really high-end high-performance race boats with really high aspect keels and rudders are easier to balance and easier to sail without steering than the heavy cruising boats uh-huh. uh-huh but either way it's it's a horrible situation and if it's you and your wife or girlfriend on a boat it's not one you want to find yourself in and that's probably a little bit more DIY accessible. Dropping the rudder, it's, it's still a huge job. It's not a weekend job, but it's something a DIYer could definitely do. So and so they could drop the rudder, they could look, how, what would There's they look There's a number for? of things you could do. So the thing one is, a lot of times you'll pull some of these older boats out of the water and you'll see the rudder actually leaks. It may not be evident immediately, but after, like, you know, the anti-fouling stays wet for a little bit and it slowly dries. Yeah. After it dries out, you might see water staining somewhere on it particularly on the bottom you might have to crawl under it or there'll be a a seam of water like going down the middle of the rudder like from the top to bottom and you can almost see a little crack there um you can get a cheap moisture meter now i don't moisture meters can lie you can get different moisture meters but pretty consistently you can put a moisture meter on a rudder and see that it's going to peg the moisture meter and that's you know from there, you could do kind of some non or some destructive testing. Cut out core samples, maybe drill a hole saw into it. Take a look at what you got. If you got nothing alarming, patch it back up and call it a day. Uh, that that's where I would start. And from there, you might find yourself with more or less problems. Do you through all the surveys you've done, all your work experience? Do you have a most memorable survey on? Let's let's stick to you know recreational boats and. I had a pretty memorable one last year. It was recreational-ish. It was a large 110-foot boat that burned, and it was in the Marquesas. And I was only involved in the salvage. But uh, salvage was always pretty exciting, and every one of them was different. It was actually, it wasn't even salvage, it was wreck removal. It was removing this burned hulk, burned down to the waterline from 10 feet of water. We were out there for seven days in the Marquesas, like 30 miles from Key West, within sight of land in Marquesas on the seagrass flat with this big barge, divers cutting this thing, you know, trying to pull this thing out of water float bags. That was pretty exciting. Um, so that was right. That was when we were down there with the Corsair 880. Yeah, we came by you one morning. I tried waving at you. Yeah, we weren't up yet. <laughs> um, that was that was exciting, but you know that wasn't your typical survey. Uh-huh. Um, I had another one I dealt with the year before. It was a, a 70-something foot uh, sailing yacht that it had a fire, and I got involved. It all, the fire had happened a year ago, but it sat burned, and it's still going through kind of legal processes of a claim, uh, fighting between the, the owner and the insurer. But the owner brought me on to help him kind of take care of the boat, babysit the boat, and get it back to its builder in England and um, get it just get the repair process started. And that was really cool. I got to deal with shipping the yacht. Like, he had me do everything other than sign the check. He signed the check. But I, you know, core got bids for the shipping process, dug into the insurance, brought the boat to the ship. We had to tow it. It didn't have any power. Loaded on the ship, supervised that, documented the condition. And it was a pretty, uh, pretty interesting challenge because it wasn't a functioning boat. We had to get it towed from Palm Beach down to Fort Lauderdale. And uh, it kind of drew a lot of attention, too. It was a larger boat on, on 
being loaded on the ship, tall rig, deep draft, etc. Hmm. Uh, that was a fun one. What is your perfect cruising boat? Say, say you have a pretty good budget, but you still have a budget. I don't know if uh, I don't know if my perfect boat even exists, but it, <laughs> and I, it, it changes. You know, I love the look of a classic monohull, like a double ender. You know, the the Dutch built boats, and then. Uh, but then I, you love the performance of a multi-hull, you know, like a gunboat type thing. How, how about let's stick to this. Um, you know, something you might have seen on the market in the past couple of years. Anything that sticks out that you would have liked to? Yeah, there was a, um, a Wormwood catamaran that was for sale here in Fort Lauderdale for years. And some guys bought it. And it was, I saw it in St. Martin last spring. I think it was a 55-foot catamaran, super light build, a lot of carbon fiber. It needed a lot of work at the time. That thing was cool. That was that was gumbo performance, and I don't know what the people bought it for, but last I saw for sale was like 300000 It oh. needed repower. It needed quite a lot of work. It was a big boat. What, but Wormwood? I have never heard of Wormwood. Peter Wormwood, I, I can't tell you a whole lot about him, but he designed a number of really high-performance kind of racing catamarans. Uh huh. And yeah, not a lot to know about him. I think this was the biggest boat he designed. Uh huh. Where I, was it built? I honestly couldn't even tell you that. Uh -huh. I really couldn't find that much information about it. But that was a cool one you saw. Oh, yeah, that was that was nice. Um, the Outreamer Fifty Five Lights would probably be the next runner up, and those I think were an uncovered kind of like people weren't attracted to them, and here lately, like post COVID boat market. Those have vaporized. They used to linger on the market for quite a while. People didn't want the narrow hulls. They're really spartan inside. They're really long and big boats with not a lot of room. But a couple of people have started cruising on them. Uh, Voyage of Zephyr has one, and they've caught on. And now whenever one comes on the market, they seem to go pretty quick. Wow, that's interesting. That Yeah, those are cool boats. I really like those boats. And, uh, I mean, you say, I mean, it's spartan and narrow for a 55-foot boat, but... They're almost like the Deerfoot Sun Deer philosophy of monohulls, if people are familiar with those, where it's, where it's like have a long, easily driven hull with a shorter rig. The gunboat 50s, I mean, not the gunboat, the Outreamer, the old Outreamer 55 and 50 lights. I'm probably pronouncing that name wrong. I think it's Outreamer. But um, they are have easily driven narrow hulls, lightweight, and relatively short rigs are still massive rigs but they're relatively short rigs on those boats uh-huh and that's uh we when we were in grenada you've been on one of the peter spronk boats um, yeah you mentioned so peter spronk was a famous multi-hole designer back what in the 70s i think so and uh, earlier than that was he he was a dutch guy right yep well we met his son roger and roger was buying back some of his dad's old uh Boat, boats that he designed and uh he has a couple there a few in grenada um but one of the things i think they have a captain named gus we got to be friends with gus he was a super cool guy and gus was saying that uh you know peter always said if you want to uh, if you want to carry more stuff just get a longer boat just that's exactly right yeah that, that is and that's that's a challenge and that's something you know when we ask what's the perfect cruising boat having been cruising i know i want to have all the safety equipment all the tools I, when we were cruising even on our little trip we weren't planning on going very far we were just going to windward and leeward islands and we knew that i still carried with me like an extra 300 feet of three eighths inch chain that weighed a ton yeah i had like 200 feet of one inch line like 
so we could tie up in some hurricane, but we weren't even out in hurricane season. It's very hard as a cruiser to like get rid of all that stuff. But if you have a more performance-oriented boat, you have to. It's, it's a must, especially catamarans, because catamarans, not even the performance catamarans. And this applies to all cat power catamarans, planing ones, sail catamarans. If you even if you're okay going slow, it's not only a matter of going slow, they start to slam. Yeah, that was always like a, a uh, I don't know what you call it. It's a fun problem, but what we experienced on adrenaline, like adrenaline wasn't even a, a long multi hull, and but her holes are very narrow, so like any significant weight, you know, you could see it the water line coming up um and we get these comments all the time on youtube like people give me so much crap for you know being picky about 50 pounds you know 50 pound generator and stuff like that and um it, it, for some it might not have been an issue but 50 pounds here 50 pounds there really adds up pretty no, quick it's a huge issue and then you have to weigh it up with like you know once you're cruising people don't realize how important a dinghy is like the people who aren't yet cruising they're planning on their rowing dinghy or a sailing dinghy or all these cute things when you get out there and you're actually cruising pretty much you just want a big ass boat with a big ass outboard to get places yeah at least that's been my experience and you want to be dry and you want to go fast and you want to go exploring and the idea that you're going to go row around the anchorage and eh, probably not going to happen unless you're up in newport or hanging out in some of these yachty locations yeah so especially for people like us like you and i who like to go spear fishing and they want to yeah, get out there yeah, and exploring it's, it's an exploration thing but that big dinghy is heavy yeah. so you got to weigh it up you know you can't if you have your big dinghy and you got you know your tool set and 150 different drill bits you pick up pick pack up a box full of tools and and spares and hardware that can easily amount to several hundred pounds yeah. and that you know that that's enough to even on a 40 something foot boat you move that a couple hundred pounds around that's the difference you know your transom going up or down an inch or a half an inch on a catamaran yeah we we always saw that like the big it was most apparent when we'd be moving off our boats like we noticed it with the trawler and we we're like man we gotta like we gotta keep be aware of this but then even when you move off of it we moved off of adrenaline like just moving all that stuff and then realizing how much stuff you have and how much it weighs is just crazy. And it becomes a problem like, well, I have this problem in my shed in my garage now, but on the boat it becomes worse. You have this stuff. If you're really thorough, you'll make like a list and, and organize it and you'll have, know what you have without digging for it. But then you have to dig it out of these lockers and try and get to it. And once you do it a couple times, you're like, why do we have all this stuff? We never can get to it. And it's like you carry all this stuff around just in case or for these what if situations. Might be better just roll the dice and do it without. Yeah, yeah. We uh, we started on adrenaline. We started to just do a purge. Like every month or two, we would just kind of open up the cabinets, take everything out, look That's at everything, idea. and and just hey, we didn't we haven't used this in two months. Like I don't think we need it. Yeah. And get rid of it. Some stuff obviously like an epurb you will never use hopefully but you're still gonna have it over provisioning is super easy to do if you've got a boat with a lot of room the girl my girlfriend and i laura and i went cruising we over provisioned i don't know where we thought we were going we went to sam's club spent a thousand dollars basically on canned goods and canned sodas and stuff we had these massive lockers and i filled this one particular locker like i think we must have put like 10 cases of coca-cola in there needed unlimited rum and cokes right <laughs> So had so much Coca-Cola in there. Anyways, 
we're sailing down off the coast of Dominican Republic, going upwind, just getting the crap pounded out of us, even though we'd re-bet all the deck hard where water was still making its way in. And salt water made its way into this particular locker, and this locker didn't have, it's an interior locker under a settee, but it didn't have a drain. So the salt water got in there and puddled up under these cans of Coke. It was just a puddle, but there were so many Coke cans in there, I couldn't see the puddle. Like, I'd go in there, open the top of the locker, take a couple cans out, put them in the fridge. And one day we got somewhere, we were drying the boat out. We took everything out to dry out all this wet upholstery. And this whole locker, like it smelled of Coca-Cola and it sprayed all over. A couple of cans had exploded and then gotten with the salt water and then corroded the other cans. And basically like I had like 10 cans left that weren't exploded. Oh this my whole God. locker, everything else had exploded and it was like Coke was in the bilge, Coke was, you know, just everywhere it was a mess and I was like oh wait so you got to be aware of like if you put too much stuff on and you can't even get to it what good is it doing yeah yeah or and you can't get to it before you are consume it can consume it, it. Yeah. we I would give Sierra crap because uh she would do the same thing not with coke but with like canned stuff and it would frustrate me because I knew that the the biggest weight in these cans is just water I was yeah. like we can make water so especially when we got our water maker so I'm like let's buy less like of course you want to have some canned stuff and a good um uh, uh stash of provisions but uh you can draw the line somewhere and, and the worst with canned foods is like they sound like a good idea and they sound convenient but you don't ever really want to eat them yeah they yeah. suck right and the truth is most especially if you're over here in the caribbean you can get groceries almost everywhere the, the out of all the caribbean i haven't been to like uh san blas but uh, the windward leeward islands and the bahamas the Outer Islands of the Bahamas are probably the hardest place to get groceries of all the places. But even there, they have canned goods. When they're out of everything else, they still have canned goods. Yeah, that's so, that's exactly what no I was going to say. No reason to be carrying them around. Yeah, I totally agree with you. The Outer Islands of the Bahamas, even through through a lot of the Bahamas, like it's hard to, to find fresh vegetables and stuff. But yeah, you'll always find canned stuff. And in the Caribbean, it was so easy to find food and groceries and stuff. Like you're always by a little town or something like that. Um, so yeah, that's that was an interesting balance to you know there luckily like our boat that we're getting now is very similar size to adrenaline but um more modern design so uh, the the holes are certainly wider especially through the back of the boat and we'll have more you know carrying capacity with that boat. so hopefully for us it won't be as i won't need to be as particular i think uh, uh, you will because you're gonna <laughs> have to trade off canned foods versus more winging and kiting gear. yeah exactly that's gonna be that's gonna be the battle right um, so one thing I, I, along the same lines I want to ask you about, this will probably be the last thing, is um, because we have this <laughs> uh, extra weight carrying capacity, I'm a little more accepting of things, and uh, <laughs> one thing that Sierra's always wanted, and I don't not want it, but I'm just skeptical of things breaking, extra systems, extra weight, stuff like that, stuff I know I'm going to have to deal with, but is uh, air conditioning, and We've now that we've been cruising through the Caribbean and the Bahamas, like I see the value in it, especially in Florida, like in the summertime and in the Caribbean in the summertime, it gets hot and humid and it would be really nice to have AC. So I think what we're going to do is just have the factory plumb the boat and wire it for AC, but not actually have them install it just because we're kind of maxed out on our budget right now. So hopefully in the future, it's uh, it's set up, ready to drop in um, AC when, when we want it and... Uh, and then we take it from there. But one thing I was just recently looking at was um, 
DC 12 volt AC units or 12 slash 24 volt, whatever it is. Um, but our boot will be 12 volt. So I was looking at this Mab Mabru unit, yeah. 12 volt. With any experience with those? I don't have any firsthand experience with them. I, I have looked at them and researched them myself, just kind of contemplating the same thing. And what I think I've concluded, and I, I'm not the guru on them, but is so they run they have a little inverter like part of the package they run their own inverter okay and so that leads to more power loss so you got to kind of really evaluate is this thing actually more efficient and in a lot of cases i think they're a little bit more expensive per btu uh -huh. or per uh ac output than the conventional um, ac powered ones and so you got to really weigh it up are you, you know, they're ideal for a smaller boat that ha doesn't have an inverter, definitely doesn't have a generator. Like, you know, if you had a, a 24 foot cutty cabin uh, power boat or, or even a sailboat of, you know, 24 foot, 30 foot sailboat that has really limited equipment, probably pretty ideal for that. But I'd really have to research the efficiency and the space, you know, on your boat, you already have an inverter. Are you being redundant by adding one of those DC uh, systems? Right. So, so I don't know. So the one I was researching, this Mabru unit, um, and I, I only started researching it, so I don't know much about it. But I watched like Bill Kelly's have a sailing YouTube channel, and I was watching their video on it. And um, it, they were saying that the actual compressor is a DC compressor. Okay. So would that make sense? That they yeah, then it's not an inverter system. Right. Maybe I'm misspoke when I'm saying. Well, that. maybe there are those. Yeah. Those out there. Yeah, I thought Mabru had some of those, but. Um, I don't know. It, it warrants further investigation, but I'd be wary of you know the increased price you're paying and and any loss of efficiency. Right. So they because they certainly are more expensive units. But um, from what the O'Kellys were quoting in their video, the uh, they were comparing um, watt uh, I believe watt hours or watts per um, what's the output that you measure AC in BTU BTUs yeah watts per BTU and they were comparing it for the front uh, to their old Dometic unit and it was like okay. night and day it was like more than double uh, doubly efficient wow in that regard um, and then they were also saying like because let me be clear we'll have a big enough inverter that we could run a conventional AC um, you know, 110 or 120 yeah. volt AC unit off through that inverter, inverter, but we'll only have 400 amp hours of lithium battery. So even, you know, we, we probably won't be able to run that all night or whatever. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, you'll have to do the research and do some number crunching. I suspect the power draw is going to end up being similar between the two things for, for the ultimate output. That's mm. my hunch. Um, you got to create the energy and, and there's just not a lot of efficiency left there uh one issue with the ac units is you probably ac powered units you probably need a soft starter and there's a couple of youtube cruisers um the guys with the leopard 43 yeah the winds yeah gone with the winds they had a really good video about putting soft starts on their air conditioning units um so that that's a pretty good starting point and then the other thing is you don't if you're an anchor or even when you're not an anchor, you don't really need AC all night. Like even on the most stifling of nights, you need you need to cool it down so that once you lay down to sleep, you got it at a comfortable temperature, and then probably keep it there till I don't know two a.m. So you probably need four to six hours of runtime, and then if it shut off after that, you know your body kind of cools down, the boat's already cooled down, the sun's down, the air's cooling down. You're probably going to be good until 
the boat's going to feel comfortable till late in the morning. Yeah. And then when you want to get up anyway. Yeah. So you got to kind of just manage your power loads and see how, how you can recharge that for, you know, the bigger issues, probably not the 400 amps of lithium power. It's how to recharge that 400 amps in a eight hour day, you know, eight hours of sunlight or whatever you have, you know, however you plan that, how to get that juice back into those batteries is probably the biggest challenge. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, good. Yeah, we. Uh, I, I told our friend Michael, who does AC here in, in Florida on boats, um, about that. He's going to look into a little bit more, and i got to do a bunch more research. So cool. we'll see what we end up with That's in the That's an future, exciting but... problem to have. Yeah, yeah. Big improvement from where we started. Oh, yeah, man. I couldn't even imagine, uh, you know, 10 years ago, my little 26-foot double-ender with not even a fridge. <laughs> and yeah. And now we're looking at AC unit. Yeah. It's... Oh, it's... I think it's wild. You anchor out by the mangroves there's a lot of really cool places not just here in florida and the islands as well where you just like know to avoid it in certain weather because of bugs mm. that becomes less of an issue if you can close it up in the evening time and have enjoy the ac yeah i mean that's really cool absolutely pretty pretty uh, and, and all of that it really is not really a change in the ac it's a change that these lithium batteries allow us to do mm-hmm. you know, have Mm-hmm. If you have deep cycle batteries, that's not really an option because you don't have 400 amps of usable power. Right, right. Yeah. Well, this is awesome, man. I think Do we have time for me to ask you a question. Yeah, sure. All right. Where would you go, crew? If anywhere, yeah, I know you guys have Jetty as a limitation, but where was your guys' dream, like some dream locations, places you want to go? I think, um, and I think we'll get there, but. The Bahamas so far has been our favorite ever. You have we have almost everything we want there. The water is amazing. We can get some surf at times, although a little inconsistent, and and we have wind for winging and kiting and stuff. So that's been amazing. But uh, our plan is to go to the Western Caribbean. We haven't been there before. Check out Panama. I look forward to seeing the sandblast, and then even go through the canal. Our biggest hiccup uh, from there is that I don't think it's realistic to get jetty into French Polynesia or any of those islands. Um, or even into Australia or New Zealand. But I, I'll say my dream, I think, is to get to, like, French Polynesia. Like, I haven't even researched a ton of that area, but, like, the Marquesas and uh, the Marshall Islands, like, some of some of those areas just are epic for surfing and kiting and winging, and I'm sure the spearfishing is probably pretty good, although I have heard of a lot of cigatera in that area. But um, I don't know. I think that's our that's my dream, at least. I think Sierra shares it to a point. Um, I think we'll have to push it off, uh, you know, for a few years unless we can figure out how to get Jetty over there. So Cool. All what, right. What do you Any, think of that? Oh, that sound, I, I think that sounds awesome. And those places definitely look picturesque. Yeah. Any places in the Bahamas that are untapped that you feel the need to go check out? just more of the out islands yeah. like our last cruise on our way down to the caribbean we did some of the out islands we hit um you know conception was a little tiny one and cat island and uh um not acklands but what's the one next to yeah, it crooked and Acklands. crooked yeah, yeah we crooked was cool but all of those places yeah. the one spot we haven't been to is uh where all our friends were hanging out for a bit was um that you call them the jumentos yeah what's the other name for them oh, drawn a mind brain far right now I forget. Yeah, but the Jumentos yeah. Islands. And the Ragas. The, the Ragas. Yeah. Right, right. So that'd be cool to check out, but um, but especially the Out Islands, because again, you get more uh, opportunity and, for any surf. Any interest in going to Sal or what about Little Inagua? Yeah, yeah. We were in um, at Little Inagua. Oh, really? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, Little Nagu is cool. We didn't spend much time there, just a day or two. You can't, right? It's unprotected. It's like yeah. an atoll, essentially. Yeah, exactly. But at least, um, I think you start kind of getting into the trade winds a little down there. So at sure. least you can stay on the west side, and I think most of the time. I mean, at least when we were there, it seemed like it was mostly easterly winds, and um, we didn't experience any like front systems like coming through. But I guess it was later in the season anyway. Um but yeah, and then uh, what was the other one you mentioned? Quesal. Yeah. yeah, so Quesal Bank is this, or it's Quesal Bank, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's basically like southwest of Andros, like yep. real far. Yeah, um, closer to Cuba. Closer to Cuba, yeah. So on our way back from the Caribbean, uh, our friends stopped there, and they said it was amazing. Um, and we didn't stop because we had a big system coming through, and a few systems in a row. And it was getting into, like, towards hurricane season. Sure. So, actually, one of the systems turned into, like, it was a low pressure and turned into Tropical Depression Andrew, I think, something like that. Anyway, um, I just wasn't sure how much protection was out there. Um, our friends had a great time there. They said there were so many fish. And you said you've been out there, No, right? I haven't been there. Oh, I you have a friend have been there. I was supposed to go there, and the trip we were supposed to go there, we had bad weather, and we went to Andros instead. Uh, and that's right. Andros is such a cool place. The people there are cool. It's That's another so one big. on the list. Yeah. And it's got a huge barrier reef. There's so miles of reef. And, um, and when, that, I, when I was there, the, both times I've been there, we were on a boat, two different boats, but they both had six-foot draft. And you can poke around Andros with six-foot draft, but that's it. You can't really get around. And if you had five-foot draft or four-and-a-half-foot draft or less, you can go down the whole backside barrier reef and poke around. And there's just miles of stuff to see there. And the, the trade-off is there's nobody there. Yeah. No cruisers. No locals are few and far between, but the ones you meet are really friendly. But uh, it's so cool. Which nobody there could be could be a great thing for for people, or it could be a bad thing yeah, if it you depends like. Depends what you want. Yeah, so. yeah. That did your friend who went to KSL? Did they say it was pretty protected? Um, I don't. We really didn't talk about that in depth. It, it did have some exposure issues, and there again, that boat was a six foot draft boat, and so what happens like throughout the Bahamas. If you have shallow, as you know, like when the wind shifts, right, if it's, it's out of the east or the southeast, most of these islands offer you protection. When it switches to the north or the west, then you got to get on the other side. And that's where draft becomes an issue. And if you have a shallow draft boat, you can pull into these coves and are behind islands and still have protection. If you got six, seven foot draft, you're stuck yeah. being exposed. And so I think that was the case with the Quesal as well. Because there are some rocks and banks or uh, little islands there that you can't get behind. Okay, okay. What? Um, yeah, this is awesome, man. What? So you're on Instagram. You post some of your stuff on Instagram, some of your survey work, which I find pretty interesting. Um, your name is Hull Survey, right? Yep. Yeah, Just that's on Instagram. One survey. One word, yeah. no spaces. Yeah, and I do a lot on LinkedIn as well if people want to see on the internet. I do have a website. How do I they find you on LinkedIn? Google my name, Matthew Knoll. Or not Google, but search LinkedIn, Matthew Knoll, and you'll find me as a marine surveyor there. And and then any other places for people to get a hold of you if they're looking for maybe? I have a website, knollmarine.com. Okay. And uh, so you can Google Knoll. That's K-N-O-L-L, Marine. And... Uh, Feel free to call me or send me a message if you got questions or uh, just want to chat about something. Happy to field questions. Cool, man. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Matt. I think this is – I found it interesting. I think a lot of people have find will find it interesting and valuable as well. So, yeah, thanks, man. Great. All right. Thank you. <laughs>